welcome to What Editors Want, the podcast where I, Philip Connor, interview a different editor from the world of publishing each week to ask them what they look for in a book and author. This is episode two. This week, my guest is Scott Pack. Scott is the former head of buying at Waterstones. Then he ran his own imprint at HarperCollins. And now he works with publishers like Unbound and iBooks. Scott and I met in the build-up to Christmas to discuss our mutual love for experimental fiction, although not, as you'll hear, the novels of Murakami. If you keep your ears peeled, you'll hear Scott reveal a genuine industry secret, and he'll tell us why he thinks publishers are throwing away millions of pounds a year. We spoke about why books are published in hardback and then paperback, and whether or not that should still be the case. As always, stay tuned until the end for a sneak preview of next week's guest, and enjoy! I'm broadcasting straight from uh, the Pack household. We're in uh, the basement kitchen. We're in the basement kitchen. We can't reveal the location for fear of um, <laughs> angry authors knocking on the door. Um, and one of the challenges with interviewing Scott is that he wears, um, all the, uh, despite being hatless currently, he typically wears many hats, um, three of which are he is an associate editor at Unbound, where we cross paths frequently. Indeed. Uh, you're an editor at large for I and Lightning Books mm-hmm. and co-founder of The Abandoned Bookshop. That... Uh, that's three of the things I do. Three of yeah. the things you do. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about each um, before we go into them in more detail? Sure. So with Unbound, I was approached a few years ago by Dan, one of the founders, and uh, Matthew, who you know very well. I do you work know. Alongside yes, him my, uh, my, my boss and uh, mentor, Matthew Clayton. Yeah. So they approached me a few years ago and... As I remember, the conversation was basically, we've set up, we've been around for a little while, we're doing pretty well, but everything we're acquiring is being acquired by the in-house team. Mm. And we want to try and get some other people on board who aren't in-house, who have other contacts, and could perhaps expand the sort of stuff that we're bringing in. That's right. Yeah, so so the idea was, because I'd been around for a while, I might be able to bring in some other people. Um, So I said, yeah, sure. Yeah. And that was, God, that must have been, what, three years ago now? It's probably more. Wow. Yeah, it's probably more than three years ago now. And it was it very relaxed. I mean, I, I, I came and spent a week in the office. I as if, as if I was a real employee. Yes. Um, and then we never saw you again. And then, and then I came in <laughs> a little less regularly. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, um, essentially a freelance acquisition editor yes and for anyone who doesn't know unbound is a crowdfunding publisher um we and uh, also where i happen to be employed mm-hmm. um and we mix the kind of uh, functions of a traditional publisher with the techie side of a crowdfunding site like uh kickstarter um and because of that techie side it's been growing quite quickly over the last few years um and essentially when when you jumped on board scott yeah and in the early days the priority was can you bring us lots of exciting new stuff? Yes, we Be- think we might have been the only publisher, perhaps in the world, who had a supply <laughs> problem. <clears throat> yeah, so that's what I did. And then gradually, as as the business itself built up more momentum, it's changed, and now it's more about 
can you find a project that would be ideal for crowdfunding? Mm -hmm. So at one point I was bringing in seven or eight books a month. Yes. And now I might be bringing in seven or eight a year, Mm -hmm. which is fine because I do other things. Yeah. And what, um, let's let's talk a little bit about some of those projects we've done together at Unbound. I mean, the one that always sticks in my mind is Kristen Hirsch. Okay. Uh, Who is someone you obviously had a uh, publishing relationship with for um, quite a while. Yeah. Um, and then was um, very, very successful for us. Yeah. So um, for those who don't know, Kristen is a, a musician, American musician. She founded a band called Throwing Muses in the late 80s when she was still a teenager. And therefore has been around for ages. <laughs> but she's not actually that old. Um, I'd published a couple of her projects when I was at HarperCollins. And when I was thinking of things that I could bring to Unbound, I thought, well... A lyric book for Kristen wouldn't be a ridiculous amount of work, mm. um, which actually was, I was wrong. She spent a lot of time going through her <laughs> lyrics to work out what to do. But, but that is Kristen's nature. Exactly. But the idea was that the, the content already exists mm. and she has a fan base. She has a mailing list. Which are things uh, crucial to the crowdfunding yeah. model. So we were. Very, it, was a, it was an ideal book to crowdfund because she mailed out her mailing list. We put together... Um, Uh, The key thing, of course, with crowdfunding is that you offer the supporters interesting rewards. Mm -hmm. And she was able to offer handwritten lyrics and a private gig and all this sort of stuff. So we did really nicely. I think it funded in just a few days because it went out to her mailing list and they they were told, we're not telling anyone else about this yet. Mm. So they all jumped on and very quickly got the book funded. And then when we mentioned it more widely, then obviously we've got more people on board. Mm. So... And it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because lyric books, apart from, you know, the Kate Bushes of the world who might get a deal with, you know, Faber mm. or someone like that, they're not um, typically something that come into existence very frequently. Um, but they work very well for the crowdfunding model, essentially, because there is that existing. Yeah, you're going to get a beautiful hardback book, probably signed by, you know, someone who's one of your favorite musicians. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it worked really nicely. It was lovely and a little bit surreal, effectively hosting a private gig <laughs> yeah. in Isling- in an Islington pub. Yeah, those are some of the added uh, behind-the-scenes benefits yeah. of uh, publishing. So, so it was lovely, yeah. So that's a, that's a really good example of where someone I had... An ideal example of why they'd asked me to join and help with Unbound was mm. this was someone I'd worked with before. I found a project that would work for crowdfunding, yeah. and indeed it did. And then also, I mean, I think as opposed to lots of people, and maybe less so now, but certainly maybe five years ago, there mm. I say, lots of uh, publishing people were not as on Twitter as they are now. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you initially also brought quite a few uh, projects from that kind of world. Um, I mean, the one, again, the ones that stick out in my mind are probably Ben Cameron, the illustrator. Yep. Tragedy Doodles. Yep. And um, Brian, Brian Bilston, Bilston, of course. Brian Bilston, the poet laureate of Twitter. Yeah, so these were both people who, again, had built up, um, at the time, small, um, but very uh, engaged, intimate audiences who really yeah. cared. Yeah, absolutely. What's really interesting there is what we find is traditional publishers are not interested in someone who's got a social media following mm-hmm. unless that following is in six figures. That's right. And I always think that they slightly equate internet publishing with celebrity publishing, which is yeah. to take the name of your blog, website, yeah. face, slap yeah. it on a cover and flog it as cheap as possible. Yeah. Um, Whereas actually the, the number of... Although the number of, of followers is important... It's the engagement level of those mm. followers that's, that's uh, really yeah. Important. A like is not... Uh, all likes are not equal. No, exactly. A, a, re- a good, fairly recent example was I saw on Twitter... Um, so someone, uh, a health and fitness blogger and Instagrammer called Bangs and a Bun. Mm-hmm. 
had mentioned on Instagram that she'd she'd taken her book to I think she'd had three meetings with publishers via right. her agent. So, so she'd actually got in the room. Yes. Which is amazing. Which is the first of and possibly largest hurdle. Exactly. Um so she was in the room and all of them eventually turned around and said, You just don't have enough followers. Mm. So she'd effectively put up a, a Instagram post that got shared on Twitter saying you know, what do I do? I know my followers are hugely engaged, but yeah. I can't convince. And someone actually said, you should speak to Scott. Well, they actually said, you should speak to me and my big mouth, which is my Twitter name. Yes. I, I always wondered if that was uh, created in a, you know, in a slapdash manner and you spent 10 years regretting it. No, I can explain <laughs> the origins to it in a second. But, okay. um, but bangs in the bun. Yeah. So she, she, I said, well, yeah, I'll chat to you. What's the story? And she explained the story to me. I said, well, if you think you can get those people to pledge, let's mm. do it. And that, again, pledge that, that funded pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. What's one of the great things I have found about working at Unbound is that it's not me sitting there saying, I think your audience is not big enough or not engaged enough, mm. not rich enough or whatever. Yeah. But is actually saying, this is what it takes. And if someone going, yeah, I think I can do that, you go, yeah. okay. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, um, so th- there's that. And then I've occasionally actually done Twitter pitch. I've said, look, this weekend I'm open to pitches yeah. from anyone. And in fact, so a book that arrived today at my house, The Bell Hotel by Craig Melvin. That's right. That was pitched to me on Twitter. How interesting. One of Unbound's most successful books ever, mm. um, perhaps surprisingly, is The Sewing Machine by Natalie Fergie. That's correct, yeah. Which is a book that was originally pitched to me on Twitter. And both myself and the author decided that actually crowdfunding the full Monty on Unbound wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. And so we went onto the digital list, which is uh, not a secondary list. That's the wrong way to describe it. But Mm -hmm. it's a a list where you don't have to raise as much money. And your book is, at the time, it was only going to be available as an Mm e-book. She raised the money. And good timing meant that at the point in which it was ready to be edited and published the digital list had started experimenting with short print runs of paperbacks. Sure. So her book came out as a paperback and an e-book and has sold tens of thousands of yeah, copies. it's been astronomically it's successful. It's been absolutely huge. Yeah. Um, so much so that Unbound are now doing a traditional trade <laughs> edition correct, yeah. because they'd be mad not to. Yeah. Um, so she has sold tens of thousands. Every, every six months, bless her, when she gets the royalty statement, I get a little DM saying, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Twitter has been a very fruitful part of your... Uh... Uh, yeah, commissioning. Yeah, I, I mean, part of me would like to leave social media completely. Mm. Like, I'm getting on, and I, you know, <laughs> I, I want to stop doing all this stuff. But, but I get so much work from it. I mean, loads of work that I get is from it, and lots of authors that I find uh, uh, come via Twitter. So I, so I, I do need to keep going on with it. I mean, I love it; mm-hmm. it's great. But I'm also aware that it just takes up a lot of time. And, and is it is it as simple as someone tweeting saying, "Hey, I have this book. I think you might be the right person for it," or is it you seeing people or a bit both? It's, I mean, sometimes it's very specifically I say, pitch me your book this weekend. Okay. So DM me a pitch and mm. I'll reply to everybody. Right. And how many would you get, would you say, roughly? I mean, sometimes you get 60. Wow. And sometimes you get 12. Wow. You just you just don't know. But, um, I mean, that's a pretty good use of a weekend, if you're, even if you're getting 12. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, my, you know, the offer is there to... I'll, I'll tell everyone what I think of their pitch. Yeah. So sometimes I'll go back and say, it sounds like a great book. It's just a subject I'm not remotely interested in, so mm-hmm. I'm not the person for yeah. you. Um, sometimes it's it sound great, but you've got 25 Twitter followers, and I from, there's nothing that you've told me that makes you think you can go away and raise 10, 15 grand sure, crowdfunding. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, Twitter's great for that, and it's been very, very useful in terms of getting... Uh, a, a range of people and but sometimes yeah it's looking at someone and go well you've got an interesting 
mm. following. And and sometimes you just don't get around to doing it. So I think four different people tweeted me and said, oh, you should really do a book with, is it Tiny Robots? That's right. And uh, I was like, small. oh, Small Robots? Yep. I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I should get round to it. I'll have a look, I'll have a look. And eventually, Unbound actually signed them yeah, up that's right. without me. Yeah, one of our colleagues, uh, Fiona Wilson. Um, yeah. But I always think that's quite it's, Unbound's an interesting environment for that kind of stuff because I remember looking at that and going, oh, that's quite funny, but I'm not sure it's for yeah. me. And, you know, one of our colleagues looked at it and went, that's for me. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's, I think, exactly what you want in a kind of editorial team. Yeah. So, so that's the sort of stuff I do with Unbound, and I'm not employed by the company, mm. so I'm not salaried, and I don't have a desk. And... So this isn't a, a paid, <laughs> paid plug as such. No, no, but but it's but it's, you know I make money from it because sure, I sure. get I get paid for the books I bring, but yeah. it's not um, it's just one of the things I do, and if, interesting, it's it's evolved over time. So some periods I've been very very busy, and all I've been doing is Unbound mm. stuff because of the number of books mm. that are coming through, and other times I'm not doing very much at all, yeah. and then sometimes I haven't acquired a book for ages, but I've got. I'm editing three books at once. Right. So earlier this year, like two or three months ago, I delivered, I think, four books in a month. Wow. Which had been funded previously, but I had to, you were I had to, do, them, yeah. I had to work on the edit. So that's a good, leads us quite on to the other stuff you've been doing. So oh, sometimes yeah. you've come across books that you, uh, that you like, but Unbound might, might, might not be the right home for yep. them. Um, so something else you do is that Eye and Lightning books. Yeah. Tell so, us about them. So... I was approached a couple of years ago by Dan Hisco, who's the founder of iBooks. Now, um, bless him, this is a this is an audio uh, medium we're working through at the moment. Yes, it so is. So when I say iBooks, people think, oh, oh. Apple iBooks. Uh, yes. <laughs> but but it's not. It's E-Y-E, uh-huh. like, you know, that I, the eyes you've got in your head. And unfortunately, bless him, Dan founded this company 20-odd years ago oh, before Apple had ventured the, into any of this stuff. Or it was a phonetic problem. So he's got, like, this oral doppelganger now. Anyway, <laughs> at the time, I was head of buying for Waterstones. And he said, he contacted me, said, look, I'm a small publisher. You don't do a huge amount with my books could I just come and pick your brains and find out what I could do to make my oh, books more attractive to you? Um, and I absolutely, he was taking me out for lunch. So, you know, I was, I was yeah. getting some free food and we had a really good chat. And basically I said to him, look, he, he published travel books and they were travel books, which tended to be inspirational stories. So, you know, I pogoed across Antarctica or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I really I, hope that's not, a... it's not a real one. Um, <laughs> But it was all those sort of things. So I think he had the the first women to walk solo to the uh, to the South okay, Pole, I see. and he had some other guy that had written a travel book across Siberia and stuff like that. So really interesting stories. And basically, I said to him, "Look, your covers are a bit shit, and you look like a small publisher. And if you could just look make them a bit less shit, then I think there's there's an opportunity there." Um, and he listened to that and went away and made some changes. And we and I, I said, "Look, I've given you the advice. You've followed it. I'll I'll back it up by." promoting some of your books right so and we stayed in touch so i think we probably over a period of time sold quite a few of his books and we sort of stayed in touch but a couple of years ago he, he took me out again for another lunch it's a slightly smaller lunch this time uh-huh. um <laughs> but it was a it was a salt beef reuben so it was quite it was very nice uh, do you remember what you had the first time no it was but it was a three course at the first oh, time this one was okay. just, but anyway it was fine <laughs> and essentially he was saying look i've set up this fiction list and i and i need some help with it i need I want to build it up more quickly and I need to, I want someone to help me acquire. So essentially I'm, I then I'm editor at large. Mm-hmm. I thought I can't be associate editor with two different places. I'll no, choose a different name. It's confusing. So essentially again, I'm broadly speaking freelance, but I find books for I and lightning books. So iBooks is the nonfiction imprint still does a bit of travel, but does lots of other nonfiction as well. And lightning books is their fiction imprint. Mm-hmm. And the brief was, 
can you bring me some really really good books very quickly that oh. we can turn around quite quickly now there's a I'm going to reveal a little industry secret here Ooh. which you know it's going to be the early days of your podcast so when you're getting millions of listeners I probably wouldn't say this okay but as we're building up to we it can, I feel I feel, and safe, bleep out. I feel safe doing this so essentially if you're a UK publisher and you want to publish something genuinely fantastic and amazing but you haven't got time to edit it you go to Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, and South Africa, and you look at what the great books are there that haven't been published in the UK mm. because they've already been edited. In fact, they've already been typeset and published. And I've got contacts in most of those places. Mm. So it's a really good example. Um, there's a, a literary award in Australia called the Miles Franklin Literary Award. Uh, yes, I, I actually used to um, be a bookseller in Australia. So well, there you go. So you will know that that's basically their Booker Prize. Yes. So two years ago the shortlist of five books was announced for this prize and none of them were published in the UK or had any impending publication in the UK. So I contacted all the publishers and said, look, could I have a look at them? So within a week of the shortlist being announced, I had all five shortlisted titles on my Kindle, reading them to see what I could do with them. Two of them, they're all great. Two of them I loved. And within two weeks, I'd signed them both. Mm. And so you were buying the, just for anyone not familiar, you were buying the rights to publish a UK edition of a previously published book in a different territory. Correct. And were you um, uh, taking the cover? Were you, or were you slapping a UK version it, of it? It differs. So, so on one side, you could look at this as very lazy publishing, uh, which, and you'd be quite right to do so, because <laughs> not, not a huge amount of work is involved. But at the same time, I also think like to think of it as slightly genius publishing, because... Oh, no, I can, would agree. Can you imagine, like, if the shortlisted books for the Booker Prize yeah. some weren't published in another country sure, sure. And, and, and and the fees that they when, when you find that there is the odd one who might yeah. not have a UK publisher or whatever the kind of fees that are involved when they get shortlisted yeah. quickly become astronomical it's ridiculous so when you flip that around yeah it's, I mean, it's, so these are the five best Australian novels of the year and mm-hmm. none of them had a UK publisher um, so uh, one of them we kept the cover because we really really liked the cover and the other one the, the actually the, the Australian cover was fine, but it probably wasn't ideal for our market, so we, so we changed it somewhat. And I also contacted Frey. I got uh, I know a number of New Zealand publishers. I spoke to one of them, uh, and I said, "Look, what what novels have you got that really should have been published over here?" Mm. And immediately he just turned around and said, uh, "I've got a book that is one of the best selling novels in New Zealand history, and it spent forty nine weeks in the bestseller charts here, and I've not had a sniff of a UK publisher." And you said, I'll take it. I'll take it. I said, well, hopefully it's not shit. Send it over and I'll have a look. And um, it was um, it's a book called The Antipodeans by Greg McKee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg is a, he's actually a, a former rugby player. He was a junior all black. He wrote Richie McCaw, he ghost wrote Richie McCaw's Wow. I mean, I am, a, I am a rugby fan. And yep. that is, you know, he like al- writing Muhammad Ali. There you go. And he also wrote a play called Foreskin's Lament, which is a, a <laughs> rugby, it's a rugby play. Yeah. That was a, like 20 odd, 30 years ago. It was very good. Anyway, great writer. And the Antipodeans was basically a set during the Second World War and is about a group of New Zealand prisoners of war, a couple of which escape and then work with the Italian partisans mm. during the Second World War. But then there is a modern-day story which links back to the wartime story. Um, absolutely fantastic. And, um, yeah, and we, we snapped. In fact, that's the book, first book I acquired for, right. for Lightning Books. And you're buying these books as is. You're not doing further editorial work. No, because, I mean, they've been published, released. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's They've been published. They've been edited. They've been successful. Um, I mean, I've got to love them. Yes, yeah. But they've been successful. So, well, why would you I mean, it's such a, it's someone doing a lot of hard work for you. Yeah, 
Um, uh, so all that was been so if you're trying to put together a list very quickly, then scouring the English speaking world for possible acquisitions is really useful. Now that's not all we do, mm-hmm. but early on it was, can we please get some titles? Really? And so effectively we've published two miles Franklin short. In fact, one of the books, um, an isolated incident by Emily Maguire, shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Prize, Australian Booker, shortlisted for the Stella Prize, which is the Australian Women's Prize, and shortlisted for the Ned Kelly which is the Australian Crime Prize. Wow. That's an amazing trio of award yes. shortlists. And um, and it's amazing. And so I signed that book, and I've subsequently signed three of her previous books that we're reissuing. Wow. So there's an amazing amount of stuff out there. Um, but also with, with Lightning Books and iBooks, I'm uh, acquiring stuff from agents traditionally. Uh, we've had some stuff submitted that we've that we've gone with. And there are a few authors that I've known historically that we've signed... Uh, because I've known they're at a point in their career where maybe they're not with a publisher at the mm-hmm. moment or they've left their agent and I know how good they are mm-hmm. and they know me quite well. Yeah. So I mean, I, that is some of my experience of working with you at Unbound is that you are quite a, a loyal publisher in that you seem to, wherever you go, you do bring a certain amount of your authors with you when you when they, when they are looking for another, the next thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, well, this is the thing because, I'm, I'm, you know, generally speaking, I'm a bit of an arsehole, but... <laughs> But and and you will find loads of people to corroborate that for you. But for some reason, I t- I think um, I tend to put I do tend to put the authors first. Mm. So you know, occasionally I might have a little bit of a mini argument with Unbound if I don't think a decision that's being made is right for the author, mm. even though the author's not paying me a penny. It's sure, Unbound sure. that are actually paying me. Yeah. Um, same with Iron Lightning. You know, I, I will fight the corner for the authors. Mm. Um, that's really important to me. Um, but but at the same time, I'm also aware that there are certain decisions you have to make for commercial reasons. Sure, and, sure. You know, you can... It's one of those weird things about being an editor, isn't it? Because you are like, um, it's. I mean, I might I might get some slack for saying this, but you are. That is the central relationship in a in a in a book is the author and editor. Now, whether that editor is working on the book or whether they're just the person who's commissioned it, yeah. that's slightly irrelevant because in-house they will become the person who champions it, yeah. uh, who gets everyone on board. Yeah. Um, but kind of ongoing, you do have that strange uh, debate to be had, which is, are you the author's representative at the publisher or the publisher's representative to the author? Exactly. And you're a bit of both. It was very interesting. When I was at HarperCollins, um, when Vicky Barnsley left and Charlie Redmayne took over as mm-hmm. CEO, he gave a really interesting speech. One of the things he said was, the people in our business, there are thousands of people in that company, hundreds of people. He said, the people in our business who have the direct relationship with the authors are our editors. Then he paused and he went, everyone else in this business works to help the editors. Wow. Whether you work in PR or finance or the canteen or whatever, our editors are our most important people and you're all working to make their lives easier or to help them out. That's very interesting. And that was a really interesting statement. Mm. Um, especially he was, he was quite a controversial mm. choice for CEO because he didn't have a publishing background. He had a digital background. He'd yeah. come from Pottermore yeah. and had previously been doing digital at HarperCollins. So I thought it was a really interesting thing to say. And I think it's true. Mm. You know, Actually, the editors are the people who are dealing every day with the authors. And they are, um, you know, and I think when a business loses, loses sight of that, it can be problematic. Because mm, it is something you hear about in publishing like all the time, um, not necessarily in public, but mm. it's something that people who work in publishing talk about near constantly, which is the dreaded term, the sales term, dot, 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 yeah. um, liked it, didn't like it, thought this, thought that. Mm. They um, often, especially 
you know, I would say the bigger you get, i.e. the more money you're giving your authors, i.e. the more the more that's on the line, yeah. the more power they have because they are seen to be the people who can either sell the books or can't sell the books. Yep. Um, and like, you know, that, that that's really interesting that that power shift happens um, and that he was seen to be trying to, I don't know. Yeah, and he's interesting. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the mythical sales department, the sales and marketing department are seen as having a lot of power because mm. they can sit there and go, we wouldn't be able to sell this. Mm. And then all of a sudden the book isn't acquired. And I've seen that happen. You've also got the... Um, and of course, I've been at the other side because when I was in retail, I was meeting those sales directors and those sales reps and all that sort of stuff. And, I, and there's a lot of truth in that, especially with big publishers. The interesting thing is when you're working with a small publisher, you don't sell many books. <laughs> you know, you're not... So for exa- a good example... <clears throat> would be typically if we if at, if at lightning books we've got a new novel that we're getting some reasonable orders for from from indies and we get a lot of support from smith's travel oh, and so that's the wh smith branches that are in train stations and airports which yep. are treated as a separate business mm-hmm. to the high street ones yeah um and actually because they tend to sell a slightly more uh to a slightly more literary market because of course the people buying on on from Smith's on the high street are a yeah. different customer to people buying yeah, from Waterloo Station. They're actually there for a magazine or chocolate. Yeah, or yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so we have a good relationship with them, but, um, you know, if, if we've got a good initial reaction from retailers, we might print two or 3000 copies of a paperback. Mm-hmm. Typically 500 or so of those would go to the wholesalers who supply independents. Mm-hmm. If we've got a good order from Smith's travel, they might buy a thousand to 2000 copies. Now, bearing in mind that we're publishing generally literary stuff and generally um, stuff that's going to get quite well reviewed and well received, if we get 50 copies order from Waterstones, we've done well. And that would be nationwide. Nationwide. Mm. So, and, you know, I used to be the buying manager for Waterstones, so I know how it works. It's not specifically a criticism of them. No, no. It's just... I sort of don't have to worry about the sales team yeah. in the way that HarperCollins do. Because if Waterstones turned around and said, oh, we don't like the cover of this book, HarperCollins, therefore we're not taking it, mm-hmm. well, that's the difference between 2,000 units or none. Mm. Whereas for us, if Waterstones take, take our book, oh, we've got to, got to find another 50 copies from something. You know, it, sure, it, sure, it sort sure. of doesn't see, matter as much. So, you, yeah, it's, it's less important the smaller you are. Mm. And it's um, also, I think, I mean, it must be really challenging to work in that sales environment where your decisions are not, um, dare I say, hunch-led, as they can mm. be in, in an editorial department, but they have to be uh, statistics-led. So you're, yeah. you obviously have to say, well, what is this like? What have they written before? Yeah. What is the actual data I can point to to say yeah, it's exactly. reasonable to yeah. expect to sell this amount of copies? So, of course, if it's something that looks different, that is different, that's mm. just bloody weird, mm. you don't have that data. You're, your only reasonable thing to say is, I can't sell this. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And I think that maybe that, I think, I mean, I think the, the indie publishing um, and small publisher yeah. in the UK is thriving and there's, yeah. there's loads of people doing really interesting things. Yeah. And I think that is slightly always going to be the case yeah i think you can always experiment more because you you publish fewer titles and you're not spending i mean for example uh, well unbound don't pay advances it's a crowdfunding publisher and mm-hmm. iron lightning we don't pay advances right so do the does it, so at unbound it's a 50 50 profit split yeah is it a similar situation it's exactly the same with right. lightning and i it's a 50 50 profit mm-hmm. share um it's that's been interesting for me as well because um you know i was a bookseller before i worked in publishing yeah i had an idea of the economics uh, i knew people who had written books i kind of knew what the advance and royalty yeah. system was but when i go home for christmas which i'm about to do imminently yeah 
try to explain that to uh and not just a lay person like a reader you know someone who's interested in books it is very confusing yeah you know i'm paying you in advance on royalties but if you don't earn out you don't get any more money and you're only getting a portion of the price that people pay in a bookshop for a book yeah and although um 50 50 profit split is more complicated than it immediately sounds Mm. you get it straight away yeah you do understand it and and i'm always very honest with people and i say look if your book sells bugger all neither us make a profit you're not going to get a penny Mm. but you will have a book on the you know, high street bookshelves. Yes. Um, if your book does okay, you might make a few hundred quid. Mm-hmm. But if your book does well to very well, then all of a sudden you're in the realm of getting a few thousand pounds. Yeah. And actually, if your book really takes off, mm-hmm. you know, then you'll be getting, you know, well, you could, sky's, sky's the limit. Yeah. But, um, you know, I had a, uh, an author I published. So at HarperCollins, I also did Profit Share. I ran a small imprint called The Friday Project. And we had a book called Confessions of a GP, which sold a quarter of a million copies in ebook. Wow. That's a, a bit like, um, this is going to hurt. It's going to hurt, but, it's but eight years before yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so ironically... Anyone, anyone listening puts a reminder in your calendar for eight years from now to yes. publish a book about a doctor. Yeah, and every <laughs> every eight years you'll sell a quarter million up. copies. Yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Um, and so just while we move on, so uh, Unbound, Iron Lightning Books, and yep. the third thing you do is you've co-founded the Abandoned Bookshop. Yeah, so I've always been passionate about so from my time in Waterstones, in fact, from my t- before my time in Waterstones, but what I found fascinating about book retail was that it's actually, relatively speaking, a very small sales window for any book. Mm. So I was at Waterstones from 2000 to 2006. There will be books that we sold while I was there in the tens of thousands that are no longer in print because mm. they had their time and they nowadays don't sell enough to warrant being in print. And that means loads of wonderful books aren't available anymore. Now, some of them are quite recent. Some of them are very old. There's books from 100 years ago that are great that aren't. And I've always been fascinated about by bringing those sort of things back. Um, and so Abandoned Bookshop, but the, the thing is, one of the reasons these books are out of print is because it doesn't make economic sense to reprint them. Because you need to print a few thousand copies to make it worthwhile, and you have to sell them to retailers at fifty, sixty percent discount, and you'll get returns, and all of a sudden it doesn't make sense. And do you think? It, and you know, the perception, whether or not it's the truth, is that you can't get the same kind of hype publicity, etc., yeah. that you can around something that's new. Precisely, our, our business uh, is obsessed with new, especially the media. They're absolutely obsessed with new, so it's very hard to go unless you've got a very famous author saying this reissue is absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not going to get any coverage. So what we did, I set up with my uh, my best friend, uh, Catherine Stephen, we set up the Abandoned Bookshop in conjunction with Canelo. Canelo are a digital-only publisher. They've been around for a few years. And what we do is we find great, forgotten, neglected books and bring them back out purely as e-books at the moment, although Canelo are moving into doing some print. So to give you an idea, they range from a book called Apollonius and Scylla by Barnaby Rich, which was published in the 16th century and uh, or early 17th century, no, 16th century, and was the story that Shakespeare nicked for Twelfth Night. Mm. So that's a small novella, which is however many, four or five hundred years old. But then we've also published books by um, Richard Blanford and Ray Robinson that were published in the 2000s. So um, Richard Blanford wrote a wonderful book called Hound Dog, which is about three Elvis impersonators in East Anglia. A gay Elvis, a fat Elvis, and uh, uh, and a guy who hates Elvis. Those are the three impersonators. Stop right there, I'm sold. <laughs> um, absolutely great. Got um, 
rave reviews from like Kevin Sampson and people like that at the time. It was published by Random House and actually sold pretty well. His second book, Flying Saucer Rock and Roll, is about kids who set up a band at school. And Random House published it as a trade paperback, so like one of those twelve ninety nine paperbacks, and it didn't do so well. Which is not a surprise with trade paperbacks sometimes. But because that didn't do well, they decided not to do a normal paperback edition. So, and that was it. He had those two books that were just sitting there, mm. and eventually got the rights back. And I said, "Well, let's do, let's do them as eBooks." Uh, and then Ray Robinson, who was published by Picador and was shortlisted for the James Tate Black Memorial Prize, his first novel, Electricity, is a film starring Agnes Dane. Um, his second novel is about a transvestite who's into autoerotic asphyxiation. And for some reason, that wasn't as commercial a success. But it's a wonderful, wonderful book. So we've reissued that. It's called The Man Without. So, yeah, I've got 500-year-old books on the list, and I've also got books that are just a decade old. You touched on a few things there, which Mm. were um, things that were um, successful in whatever sense when they came out and then are out of print now. And also the Richard Bland, for example, which was doing a format that wasn't maybe quite right and then not getting another shot. Yeah. Something that is, I wouldn't quite say it's a debate just yet, but it is something that you, you hear talked about or and without anyone really giving a definitive answer mm. is this thing about formats. Yes. You know, um, especially when it comes to fiction because everyone's perception of a, how you publish a book um, is that you do a hardback uh, that you don't really expect to sell many copies of but hope it gets nice reviews mm. and then you slap all the nice reviews on the paperback, uh, make it cheaper and hopefully sell loads. Yes. But, of course, what actually tends to happen is you uh, don't sell any copies of the hardback, doesn't make any economical sense to the paperback, and thus the bus, the book disappears. So if you want a nice controversial bit of debate in this podcast... Uh, this is a controversial okay. so, zone. Although I know a lot of people who work in this side of the industry, and I've got a lot of time and respect for them, if we're honest, one of the things that is massively restricting, especially literary fiction in this country, are the literary review pages of the newspapers. And the reason is this. They will give massive priority to hardbacks so you're right the reason lots of literary fiction is especially debut literary fiction is published in hardback is because it's the only way that the broadsheet newspapers will treat it seriously and you, and that you'll stand a chance of a review it's the only way and i mean it's always I, i'm aware of that uh, but again it's not always talked about which yeah. is something i'm finding with these interviews is that there's so many things that people know but don't say yeah. out loud so so you have to publish if you want the Observer, the Sunday Times, the Telegraph, uh, whoever to to review your debut, and of course they might not review it anyway. They get of sent course. loads of stuff. I mean, I'm sure they they get ten times oh, more books than they should. Hundred times more probably, but you've got to do it in hardback, otherwise it will not get the reviews. And but by doing that, you are tying up money and time in a book that may not sell because they demand it. That if you don't give us the hardback you might get a mention in the paperback section, which is tiny. Mm. Um, But whereas the people who buy those newspapers spend more of their money on paperbacks than hardbacks. And it's it's this obsession with the news. So if I'm honest, I think they massively restrict what publishers can do because, you know, you've got to publish in hardback to get the review coverage. Um, One in maybe every 30 or 40 hardbacks sells enough to pay its own way. Um, but you're doing it because you want the reviews, so you can slap the reviews on. Mm. on the front. We, we we only did with the Iron Lightning books. We only did two hardbacks in the past year. One was um, Self and I by Matthew Diabathua, which is a um, 
memoir of his time as Will Self's assistant. Oh, yes. Now, we published it in hardback because we knew that subject matter would be of interest to the broadsheets, but we'd need to do it in hardback in order to Mm. get them to cover it. So, just to clarify, so you're not doing it as a valid commercial prospect, you're doing it as a. You're doing it for the express purpose of hoping to get. We wanted coverage in the newspapers, and if we did it straight as a paperback, a number of the newspapers wouldn't have looked at it. Mm. Now, as it happens, we got serialised Sunday Times magazine. It was reviewed in almost every newspaper and positively reviewed almost everywhere, which is fantastic. It sold okay. Um, But we've got loads of reviews to slap on the paperback. The other one we did was Their Brilliant Careers by Ryan O'Neill, which is one of the Miles Franklin shortlisted books because it is a literary experiment. It pretends to be 16 biographies of Australian writers, but it's actually complete fiction. And you've had some uh, uh, people, even booksellers, miss shelving this. Well, it's our it's our own fault. Well, firstly, we did it in hardback so that we could get some review coverage, and we only the iPaper reviewed it, saying it was amazing. And we had a couple of bloggers. We didn't we didn't actually get into any of the broadsheets, unfortunately. But I sent copies to loads of authors I know, yeah. and we've had loads of people turn around going, "It's my book." So John Connolly, the Irish mm-hmm. crime writer, well, he writes other stuff as well, but primarily known for his Charlie Parker series. Um, he said it's his book of the year. Mm. The eye paper picked it as, as one of the books of the year. But we deliberately published the hardback without any reference to the fact that it was fiction in consultation with the author. Because the Australian edition says, you know, this is a novel. Yeah. And was like, well, wouldn't it be fun? <laughs> we knew we, it wouldn't be fun if, we, if the people who discovered this book in its first edition in the UK, in this lovely hardback edition, wouldn't it be wonderful if what they have is a book that pretends to be what the book is pretending yeah. to be. But it does mean that if you go into your local Waterstones, you might find it in the biography section or mm. literary criticism. Sounds like something that someone like B.S. Johnson would do. And, or, uh... and that's exactly what the author wanted. Yeah. He said, Scott, if, you, if you're prepared to take the hit in sales, then I'm delighted to that you should do this. joke. Yeah. So the paperback makes it very clear. In fact, in fact, the hardback says on the front, Winner of the Pennington Prize for Nonfiction. Yes, which is a fictional <laughs> award. It doesn't exist. Um, and there's I loads think more of... people could do that. Oh, it's it's especially it... you know with some of the big awards even changing sponsors so frequently. Oh, exactly, you could say you know you could say anything. So anyway, yeah. Um, but well, my... I think having you know you you tweet about a lot of books, but I don't think I've seen you be as besotted one of your own children for quite a while well I mean and it's and it's sort of not one of my own children because someone else acquired sure, it and sure. edited it and I just brought it over here but genuinely like when I read it, it was, I mean it is one of my favourite books ever full stop and wow. you don't often get to publish your favourite books ever no. you get to publish lots of books you're passionate about but of course you know when you make your list of the top ten books you've ever read there'll be things you read when you were a kid or a teenager and more recent classics and all that sort of thing but this book I absolutely does I love playful experimental fiction and this does it perfectly. I absolutely adore it. Mm. And in fact, we, we've signed. We then signed up his previous book, and we've signed up his next book, which is going to be. There's a classic Australian story called The Drover's Wife, and by Henry Lawson, and Ryan has rewritten it 99 times in 99 different ways. Oh, what's it like the Raymond? Raymond Quino. So it's, yeah. it's again, it's a it's an homage to that. But some of them, one of them is a self-published author's cover. <laughs> one of them is a cryptic crossword. Um, yeah, it's, it's oh, brilliant. Yeah, so it's a great. So yeah, but anyway, the main point there around all of that is the insistence of broadsheet newspapers that they're only going to give priority to hardbacks is actually stifling our industry massively because what, we're we're making decisions based on that 
and we are throwing millions of pounds away a year into hardbacks that actually won't sell because most readers don't buy hardbacks mm. and in fact a lot of independent bookshops are my very good friends at the big green bookshop in Wood Green yes. don't really want hardbacks mm. our customers don't buy them Scott please don't publish your books in hardback <laughs> and um, what is that what is that about the newspaper is it habit is it pretension is it tradition is it receiving a paperback from a publisher and thinking oh well they're not going to take it seriously enough to do it in hardback so I'm not going to take it seriously is it just having too much to pick from so a really easy way to, to narrow the field is to just do hardback is it a bit of all of those things yeah well it's historically everything was published in hardback and then it was published in paperback that blasted Alan Lane yeah and, th- and that was the way it used to work and that's how the papers have always been set up I mean if you think about it paperbacks are now over 100 years old mm. and they still only have a small section in our broadsheet newspapers yes and because someone said to me a while a couple of years ago they said well when will things that come out purely as ebooks get reviewed in newspapers I said we'll come back in 100 years because it's taken them 100 years to yeah, give yeah. any sort of section really and I bet I mean I, I don't have obviously but I'm sure you could check on Nielsen or something yeah. like it how many books in 2018 for instance were paperbacks sold and how many were yeah. you know that's a oh I, I mean from my times in water if you go so if you look at the best selling books in Christmas week so it's going to be next week mm-hmm. yeah so when that list is when that chart is published if you look for hardback literary fiction I will give you a tenor for every hardback literary fiction title you can find in the top 100 books in the country. Mm. And I'm probably not going to be giving you any money. I wouldn't have expected that. There may be, there'll probably be a Martina Cole hardback. Yep. There may well be, uh, well, actually, uh, well, I was going to say the Booker Prize winner, but it's not, it's a paperback. Um, That's right. There may be, there'll be a Martina Cole, there may be a Stephen King. Like, I mean, even you're thinking about the, the you know, uh, this is a good example, you know, a book that has been absolutely hailed for critics, mm. Waterstones Book of the Year, yep. one of Fyodor Awards, one of my favourite books of the year, yep. Sally Rooney. Yep. Um, uh, and I'm, you know, always in the LRB's yep. bestsellers and places like that. Yep. Do you expect to see something like that in this list? It, w- it won't be in the top 100 sellers in the mm. country. Bearing in mind, of course, that at Christmas, that 100 sellers, yes. you've got five or six cookbooks, yep. you've got 20 celebrity biographies, You've got loads and loads and loads of paperbacks. Mm. Um, no, and I remember the, the, there was a particular year, I think, the best-selling literary fiction hardback in the country when I was at Waterstones, I think there was a Sebastian Falk's book, which was like a number 150 mm. in the country. Um, and that's the thing. People don't people prefer buying... Now, at Christmas, you do buy hardbacks. It shows a more thoughtful sure, gift sure. And, and whatever, but it's spread around a, a lot of titles. So, yeah, that, that's my big concern. It, it's not going to change because no. that's the way it, it operates. Mm. And I think that's where small independents will become a little bit more cute and clever and maybe think about ways that they can do hardbacks. That, you know, maybe you do it, but it's a limited edition. Sure. But you don't tell the broadsheets it's a limited mm. edition. Don't tell them anything. So, in fact, <laughs> you know, what I'm going to do, I'm going to print 100 copies of this hardback and I'm going to put it out there. And actually, I've got a paperback coming in two months' time. Yeah. Or whatever. So um, we've talked a bit about all of your various, well, some of your many hats, let me say, because you also do loads of other things. You know, you lecture a bit at Oxford Brooks, you do a yep. Guardian Masterclass, um, you even write questions for the BBC. I, I am one of the, I used to be a question setter to fi- for 15 to 1 on Channel 4, yep. uh, but that's no longer being made, nothing to do with me. And <laughs> the questions were and never I ne- the problem. I now set questions for Impossible on BBC One, which mm. is Huge. I've always been a writer and an editor, so mm-hmm. th- it just so happens at the moment some of my writing is writing quiz questions. Um, and so thinking back on so like you know all of those books and you know publishing them in all these various ways and mm. at various imprints and 
What what would you say makes a Scott Pack book? What what is it that you seek out? What what unifies all these books you're doing in various different ways? There's sort of two answers to that question. One is it depends on the brief I'm I'm given because actually you mm. could you could look at some of the books I published at Unbound and yeah. say well that's not actually a Scott Pack book. A, a good example would be um, Lifelines, yes, by Malcolm Doney and Martin Rowe, who are two part-time vicars. That's right, freelance vicars. They are yes, who've written a book, a spiritual book. Uh, that looks at like the Christian message and all that sort of stuff. I am an atheist. I don't believe in any of this stuff. But I could see that they had a very passionate vision for what they wanted to do, and I could absolutely see where there was an audience for it and how it could get crowdfunded. Mm-hmm. So I did it. It's not that I don't believe in their book. Sure. It's I don't believe in mm. the religion that they follow. Yes. But the but it's the book isn't a religious book really. No, no. It's about you know are the, well. It's not unusual for people who are into yoga and meditation to look at things in Buddhism yes. and think, oh, that's a really nice teaching. And what they've said is, well, why can't you do that with mm. Christianity? There are lots of things within Christian teachings. Are quite interesting. Now, that's not really my thing. Sure. So part of like any editor's job is not just this is a book you like. It's saying this is what the publisher you're working for is good at. Go and find things like that. Correct. And it doesn't mean it's no disservice to the book itself because that's a great book. It's just it's, it's not a book that... I would have gone out and purchased for myself and then read it for myself. Right. But it is a book I can publish well, mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense. It does, it's yeah. like I know how to publish but this the, book. The, the inverse of that must happen as well, which is a book you totally love, but you don't work at a publisher that can publish oh, it. Oh, God, yeah, that happened. That, that, <laughs> that does happen. Um, um, but is, sorry, I've interrupted your point. What is, no, the no, second, what is the second thing that makes a Scott Pack book? Oh, so, 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 that, so, yeah, so that, that's one thing where I think, you know, that will fit the brief for the publisher and I know how I can do it. And the other one is... is uh, there are certain subjects I, I like experimental fiction mm. but I like experimental fiction that's readable yeah so a lot of experimental fiction is very very hard so I just I did buy a copy from Verso who are a great publisher of Tristano where I can't remember the guy's the author's name but it's a book where <clears throat> no two versions are the same so oh, they print any the, edition of the book of any edition oh. they print the pages in different orders oh my god and each page has effectively three block paragraphs and it's about a relationship now I think I love that idea, but I started reading. And I thought it's unre- I can't read this. Mm. It doesn't work. It doesn't flow. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of Georges Perec, the uh, French writer who yep. famously wrote a book without using the letter e. Mm-hmm. And it's great to read it once. Yes. But that particular book of his is not a book I would reread because it's not actually mm. that. Yeah, I too. I am also a lover of. Um, I won't use the word difficult because I don't think that's mm. fair. Of experimental things. Yeah. Um, but the the thing that trips me up as well is when the experiment becomes a point and the story gets precisely to the side. So I loved, you know, in recent years, some of my favorite books are things like Emer McBride. Yep. Um, and you know, I I I don't think it's difficult is the right word because I think when these things work properly yes. and work as I feel they should, the experiment doesn't override the story it in fact enhances it and helps you tell it how it should be told yeah so so ryan o'neill's their brilliant careers is an experiment yeah and but it works brilliantly i'm a big fan of a, a writer uh, called sarah salway who writes incredibly commercial fiction but it's all expect there's always an experiment going on there somewhere mm. um which is really really so her first novel which has rave quotes from neil gaiman and william gibson is a romance 
uh, called Something Beginning With, and it's told in alphabetical order. So there's entries for different letters of the alphabet. Oh, that's so interesting. It's a really lovely idea, but it's effectively published as a sort of romantic comedy. Yeah, one of my favourite books this year um, did something similar with the alphabet, which was called Census by Jesse Ball. Yeah, yeah. It's a book Granta published in the UK. Yeah. And uh, it has a really almost tear-wrenching introduction from the author, which explains about um, his uh, about his brother who had Down syndrome. Mm. Um, and although he was his brother, he always felt they had a kind of fallen yeah. son relationship. Uh, it's about it's literally a, a one-page back-and-front introduction, but it just perfectly sets yeah, yeah. up what you're about to read. And it is set in this very surreal, almost um, apocalyptic world. Mm. And it is about a father and uh, his son taking the census, and they have to start in the town of A, go to the town of B, C, D, yep. and through the alphabet, and brand people when they have... Uh, mm. Uh, been registered by tattooing on them but it was just one of the most touching lovely mad beautiful things that yep. i read this year um and those are the things that really you know i, I l- don't get me wrong i love sitting down with a very well told story but yeah, yeah. there's something about that where you're really um pushing the form that i think really excites me i think if you can do an experimental novel and not be pretentious that's a real skill yeah because I, I mean you know everyone could not everyone but you you could set yourself a, a target you could say right i'm going to write a book but it's i mean I've, I've for years i've wanted to write something which is just the the labels you get in art galleries that explain the picture ah but to tell a whole story in that way yeah which would be quite fun i've got a book i need to send you Okay. It's something called Bloomsbury published that is a fake auction catalogue, but is in fact... Do you know what I'm talking no, about? No, I've got it. It's Leanne uh, Chapton. That's right. Um, something object... Something... That's right. Oh, yeah, no, she's great. She's a great example. So so that book, which I've got upstairs, does look like an auction catalogue. But if you read it, you get the story of a relationship. Mm. It's brilliantly done. Mm. So I like that sort of thing, because you can be experimental, but still be... So I like that. And then there are certain authors, a certain style. It's often an American author. So I like authors like Eleanor Lippmann, Charles Baxter who are writing be- um, um, Kent, uh, so there's an author called Kent Haruf that's how it's spelt but actually you pronounce it Kent Herif apparently um, that sounds like something that he may even have corrected to view in person or possibly <laughs> possibly but he has no he hasn't but it, but he he was he, he died a couple of years ago and is wonderful he writes I think I'm right in saying there isn't a single metaphor or simile in his books Wow. And yet his books read like beautiful poetic prose. It's lovely. He just gets to the heart of a person brilliantly. And those sort of authors I like a lot. And it's, often they're sort of American Midwest authors and stuff like that. But there's a certain way of writing. And I also, I'm a big fan of Japanese fiction. And so over the years I've managed to publish a lot of things like that. Mm. I was going to bring this up, but I know we're probably going to slightly fall out about it. That's, which is, well, that's which fine. Which is the, the dreaded fun. Murakami question. Yeah. Because I know you are... a a massive fan and if I remember correctly your son even bears the middle name so yeah so my son's middle my son's name is Ethan Haruki um we get made made it the middle name so that if he hated it he wouldn't have to admit it but actually he quite likes it um uh, when I was in my early 20s I read a book called A Wild Sheep Chase which mm-hmm. I picked up in a secondhand bookshop in Leon C where I lived and it was the perfect book for me at that age. And if you can find, you know, sometimes it happens to you as a teenager on your 30s or yeah. where sometimes you find the book that for that point in your life is perfect. Yeah. And that book was odd and out of left field and had weird shit going on and was Japanese. I quite like Japanese things anyway. And it was all set in Japan. So all of that was great and I loved it. But part of the reason for my Murakami obsession, as it was, it wasn't quite an obsession, but the reason I was, was I finished that book and in the back flap it said, um, dance, dance, dance is the sequel to a wild sheep chase, 
And Haruki Murakami is also the author of Norwegian Wood, the most successful novel in the history of Japanese literature. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I've just read my favourite book ever. And he's got another he's one. He's got a sequel, <laughs> and he's got another book that's yeah. the best... None of them available in English. Wow. So when I, got to, when I started reading Murakami, there were two books translated into English. That was it. And our, uh, our, uh, one of our uh, friends and co-founders of Unbound, John Mitchinson, actually... Yes. Uh, had some responsibility with bringing him into the English language. Well, he did because he was a um, Murakami was a, his first two books were published by Penguin, and then they didn't really do much, and Penguin didn't continue. And then um, Harville, uh, where he was, started mm. publishing him. So, so what I had is an author that I immediately fell in love with, where there was loads of books he'd written. But, inaccessible. But, I but inaccessible so that made it all the more attractive yeah, so, yeah. and then there was it was the early days of the internet so there was actually like this sort of black market so someone said oh two of his books were translated into English but only in Japan and only for people learning English by Kodansha International Press and what it was they were little books where half the book was actually a glossary which explained some of the words. So oh, and the idea was, let's publish popular Japanese books in English so yeah. that Japanese people wanting to learn English would read them, which is a really nice idea. In fact, Rudyard Kipling um, once said, um, if you want, and this was obviously in the 19th century, um, uh, and slightly sexist the way he said it, but if you want a boy to learn French, give him a copy of um, Around the World in 80 Days and in English, and halfway through, take it away from him and give him the rest in French. <laughs> and he will learn French. Um, so anyway, um, so and then we found out that the Japan Centre in London had copies of these English language versions. And I got these. They ended up, cha- they weren't available for very long. They ended up changing hands for four or five hundred pounds a copy. Wow. Then Norwegian, so basically as a, as a reader, and a, then I became a bookseller and a publisher, I was waiting for his books to come out. And that's that made me slightly more. It made it slightly more of an mm. obsession. Um, I had a. I mean, I, I totally sympathise with that feeling yeah. in different areas. Yeah. Um, I know. I remember it like being, you know, probably in my late teens, early twenties, and you know, people like Kurt Vonnegut who had that same kind of, yeah, uh, slightly silly but not stupid approach. But imagine life. if you had to wait. <laughs> He's got he's got twenty four novels. I Wonderful. Know. Well, only three of them are available, so you're gonna have to wait for that. So, I mean, actually, so so the period of the nineties and early two thousands, he was my favorite writer, and I did lots of you know I was fascinated by his stuff. Actually, his more recent stuff I've not been as fond of. Mm. Um, I still quite like. It's like when you really like a band. It's like you yeah. know, I, I was massively into REM in the eighties. Sure. I can't pretend for one second that the last three albums yeah, were they're great. They're still releasing albums and touring them, but it's not quite something's lost as far. Yeah, but I mean, I still think they're good. Yes, but they don't have the same. You know, I've yeah. not played the last four or five REM albums in ten years. Right, but I will happily go and put Document on yeah, yeah. or Murmur on, um, and it's the same with recovery. So it's, I do enjoy his books, and in fact, the most recent one I enjoyed more than many of them for a while. Um, but I don't. They don't have the same hook on it. They're still. You know, I still think they're, they're great in many respects, but I can see more problems with them now as well. Mm. So, you know, a lot of people have raised issues with, with his current book, um, Killing Commendatory, which is that um, there are some a couple of quite odd sex scenes. Mm, Including recently nominated for the Bad Sex Award. Well, and that was unfortunate because the scene that they nominated actually reads like a rape, but it was a dream sequence in which... He has sex with his estranged wife in a dream, but his wife gets pregnant on the other side of Japan. 
at uh, the same time, but she doesn't know how. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the most Murakami set <laughs> yeah, exactly. you ever likely to Exactly. Hear. But but there's also there's a there's a teenage girl in the book and he keeps referring to her being flat chested and just a bit too much. Right. And, and it's also, you know, you never know translations and you know maybe i'm making excuses for no reason well no oddly i actually met the translator and asked him about it and he went i asked the same question and he said no that has to stay yeah because um you know i was a bookseller um god too many years ago like maybe seven years ago mm-hmm. in australia and listen you know, to you seven years yes. ago being too many years ago <laughs> and um you know uh Murakami was dare i say even more popular there you know yeah, yeah. just being proximity yeah yeah and i'd read a few and for me like the Murakami books fell into two categories which were his mm. kind of normal quite sparse fiction of mm. norwegian wood and then like the bloody weird ones mm. um which i was less fond of yeah. and then it was when uh 1q84 came out mm. and i was quite a keen reader and i thought you know what i'm gonna tackle this and i hated it hated it hated it i would never finish it now yeah. but at the time i could i was in that period of my life where i, I wasn't confident enough to stop reading it yeah, yeah, and it was okay. a thousand page book of people going down a staircase and then going back up it it's really interesting because because <laughs> uh, i'm convinced he'd re- read the girl with the dragon tattoo before he wrote that book what convinces you of that? Because the central character is this skinny assassin. I I, I think he 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 was familiar with um, mm. Elizabeth Salander before that. Because interesting, because I did actually a you know, massive name drop. But we've, we've mentioned him loads now. So I um, when he, Murakami did his first UK event, um, I I was the person who interviewed him wow. on stage. It was at the Prince Charles Cinema when after the quake, his collection of stories came out. Yes, and I and. It was a, it was a, I think the interview went quite well. It was the first time I'd ever interviewed anyone on stage, so it was a bit odd for me. But I did get one, I think, really, really juicy bit of gossip. Ooh. So famously, Norwegian Wood was such a success in Japan that he fled Japan. You know, people would dress up depending on which of the volumes of the book they were wearing. And there was Norwegian Wood air freshener. And, you know, the, the, the Muzak version of Norwegian Wood, which is mentioned in the beginning of the book, went to number one in the hit parade. You know, it was just bonkers. So he left and lived in America for quite a while. And while there, he wrote The Wind-Up Road Chronicle, which is considered to be his masterpiece. Uh, and I think it probably is. Um, and that's very weird. And there's lots of scenes in a weird hotel. And he goes down a well and all this sort of stuff. And I said to him, look, what, when you were in America and you were writing this book, what sort of what sort of stuff were you doing? What were you doing? Because you know, presumably you were watching different TV shows and listening to And he said, uh, I was obsessed with Twin Peaks. Ah. He said, I wrote wind up bird chronicle while watching twin peaks high on twin peaks exactly and, you, and then and then everyone in the audience went oh, of course of course well that is a very juicy bit of gossip yeah indeed. um now just so with uh, just one thing i want to talk to you quickly about before we finish which is your um time at waterstones mm. which uh, you had this very uh, grand uh, position of being was it head of buying is that what you were called so I, my title was head of buying effectively what it meant was I, I ran a team of about 15 people who looked after the promotional buying so buying was split into two groups so you had promotional buying and range buying um, okay and I'm going to take a guess at this which is uh, this? But it was all done centrally. So you were buying for all the stores in the country, or were they, was it localized to each branch? No, so it was a mixture. So promote. The idea was we were in charge of what was generally a three for two campaign. Mm-hmm. So we were buying new books in bulk with discount to go into the three for two campaign, and also the books that would go on the chart wall. So that so, you know, when 
and you know when a new McEwen came out in hardback, we would buy, we would decide how many to buy, we would ship it out to the stores, and we would do a price offer on it, or we might put a paperback into a three for two. So that so the front of store, that was us. So this is where everyone publishers authors wants to get their book for their new books, yeah. Uh, and also we did a, you know, we often included old books in the three for two. And then the range department were the people who looked at all the books we weren't buying and saying, well, should we have those in our shelves? Mm. Um, and they also looked at backlist. So the range department were in charge of making sure that no one sold out of Capture in the Rye. Because if you go into a bookshop and they haven't got Capture in the Rye, they're a shit bookshop. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You just have to Even them. though there's lots of reasons why I they might not have it. it's actually the law. You have to close yeah. your doors immediately. Exactly. So they looked after that. And they'd also look and say, oh, look, there's an interesting novel being published it's a third novel by this author who's never sold a lot but oh. we sell him very well in the northwest so we're just going to make sure the stores in the northwest have got it mm-hmm. whereas we were give me a thousand copies of this book and we'll put a three for two sticker on it and we'll right. give every store five copies and right. then see what happens so that, yeah that's what i did my, my team looked after there that are many people uh you know many authors out there you know you would have been the person that everyone wanted to put their your book in there yeah i mean there was a good yeah so so I actually made very few buying decisions because mm. I had a team of people that did it. I managed that team. But I was the, because I had a column in the bookseller and I was quite vocal, I was the person who, you know, I was the shorthand for, well, Scott didn't like it. Ah. Or Scott really liked it. You, you were so the sales department, the, the yeah, excuse. Uh, exactly. Was... In fact, I remember once Gail Rebuck, who was CEO of Random House, oh, dear. We, did we, a she big, wasn't angry at you, was she? Well, no, she did a huge <laughs> history day. She invited all of the Waterstones buyers to this big history day because. Someone had said, oh, Scott says history doesn't sell anymore. Oh, to change your mind. And, and it was a, here's all the reasons why history will still sell. And someone had to say, you realise Scott never said this. He loves history books. This is amazing. It's just someone's used it as an excuse. Oh, no. So that happened a bit. But at the same time, you know, we, we did have, you know, we could make or break a book if we yeah. put it in a campaign. And that's a big, you know, responsibility to have. But at the same time, there's finite space. And, you know, and I can moan now about the fact that Waterstones aren't buying enough of our books, but I was not buying enough of other people's books sure, when I was sure, there. Sure. So, you know, it's tough shit. Mm. That's what happens. But, yeah. Great. Okay, well, thanks very much for your Scott time, Scott. I've got one question just to finish it off. Um, okay. We talked on about lots of books you have published, but mm. as we're nearing the end of 2018, can you tell me one book from this year that you wish you'd published? One book from this year, I think... Yeah, I was very... And there's a few reasons why I haven't... There's a book called False River by Paula Morris. And she is a New Zealand writer who... And this book is a collection of essays. And I absolutely loved it. Um, I met her when I was in New Zealand a couple of years ago. And it's it's got travel writing. It's got an amazing essay about Little House on the Prairie, the Laura Ingalls Wilder Wilder books, and what's happened to the legacy of those books, which is you can find online, actually, if you Google Paula Morris Little House on the Prairie. The article is available to read online. It's incredible. It's a wonderful collection of essays, um, but it just wouldn't sell over here. So it's been published in New Zealand, and I just can't see... I'd love to say to the people at Lightning Books, Iron Lightning Books, let's do this, because it's amazing, and I'm going to sell shitloads but I just won't because she's not that well known over here and essays are always difficult to sell. And, uh, you know, so I would love to have published that. And part of me still actually wants to go and sign it up. <laughs> but with the best will in the world, I just, I, I think I would struggle to sell it. You're doing here. that Murakami thing, aren't you? You're telling people there's something out there. They just can't have it. Yeah, well, they can have it because you can get it. You can get it okay. online. Great. So I would love to have published that because I think she's a great writer and is doing really interesting things. Uh, but sometimes the reason you don't publish a book is not because someone else published it first, 
which is often the case. You mm-hmm. said, oh, you know, Circe by Madeleine Miller was a great book. I'd love to have published that. You know, yep. Sarah Perry's a wonderful author. I'd love to have published her. You know, all of so th- all of that counts. But sometimes you don't publish a book because you can't justify it to the people who are going to have to spend the money. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just the way it goes. Join me next week when I'm pleased to say I'll be speaking to one of my favourite publishers of all time, Granta. Many people might know Granta Magazine. They're also the publisher of people like Elner Catton, Ben Lerner, A.M. Holmes, Patrick DeWitt and Hang Kang. I'll be speaking to the senior commissioning editor, Anne Meadows, about her work with amazing authors like Margot Jefferson, Catherine Lacey and on the phenomenon that is Convenience Store Woman. If you like today's show and can spare a few seconds, it helps us out massively if you can give us a quick rating out of five on iTunes or leave a short review. Thank you.